Today's sponsor is Casper. Get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash recode and using the promo code recode. Terms and conditions apply. Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher, powered by digital media. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. You may know me as the only person in America who doesn't watch the Super Bowl, but in my spare time, I talk tech. And you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. Today in the red chair, we have Mike Cagney, the CEO of the marketplace lending company SoFi, the company you've never heard of, but which recently raised a billion dollars in funding. Mike is an entrepreneur and a macroeconomist who has founded several financial services companies. He and his colleagues at SoFi say they want to be the ones to one day replace your bank, and they may just do that. Welcome, Mike. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. You, you know, you're the company sort of not come out of nowhere. You've been around for several years. About four years. Yeah. Yes. But people are all excited about SoFi suddenly. Well, I think we're having a pretty big impact in the market. I think that our value proposition is uh, begun to be very well received. And our we have over 115,000 members today and growing about fifteen to 20,000 a month. So it's getting out there. So let's get back to your background. I mean, people are probably attracted to the giant funding that you got recently from SoftBank and others. Um, and we'll talk about that in a second. But talk about how you got here. Um, you have a background as a macro... Well, I, I started. Oh, nice. I started back in 1994 at Wells Fargo, and mm-hmm. uh, so I like to refer to myself as a reform banker. But, All right. Uh, I spent four years there um, running uh, proprietary trading and other things for the bank, and uh, got a, a great appreciation of financial services out of that experience. But also an understanding of a greater of what, one, or you're horrified well, with. Well, them? well, I got an understanding of what didn't work uh-huh. and and where there was opportunity to make change, and so. Um, in 2000, uh, I left to do my first startup, uh, which was a wealth management. Can I ask you a question before you? Why did you leave? I mean, a lot of people just don't do that. What caused you? So you're sitting there at the bank doling out 20s. What, what happened? Yeah, well, fortunately, I wasn't. I wasn't doling out the 20s. Yeah. But um, it's a great question, and, and the honest answer: my wife had, had gone into the technology universe and, mm-hmm. and was number four at a company that had, had rocketed uh, to an IPO and. Uh, she asked me at what point I was going to do something meaningful for the family. So uh, I, I decided being married that, was not enough. Yeah, no, not definitely not. And and so I decided that uh, I needed to take a shot. At the time, uh, this was before the crash had happened in 2000. And so uh, mm-hmm. you know, I remember Fast Company was writing an article about how to pick the right VC, as mm-hmm. if there's a, a, a 25 that want to fund your company mm-hmm. that you can go through and actually determine who the best connection is. Um, obviously, once we started the company, the crash hit in 2000, and so Perfect it was a very different timing. dynamic. Yes, one of the worst market timing events I've ever but had. But what got you out the door? Because I think a lot of people don't do that. They see problems in their company or a traditional industry. Well, I'd, I'd always been entrepreneurial at Wells, so I, I created the derivative business there and, and grew that uh, as part of the capital markets effort and to a very meaningful portion of the bank. And, and it was clear to me that there was only so much you could do within that organization. And, mm-hmm. and it was really the opportunity to go out and do something on my own, have my own stake in it. And, and build something Why out. Why was it clear to you? What, what happened? It's just they don't want to make change? Because, you know, banks are the area that really haven't been disrupted as yeah, much. Yeah, I, I think one of the one of the realizations you have when you work at, at an organization like Wells, and Wells is a great bank, mm-hmm. um, but irrespective of how important I thought I was at Wells Fargo, if I got hit by a bus on the day to work, um, the bank was still there the next day, mm-hmm. right? So it, it wasn't clear that I could have a direct contribution in terms of growing that business out, and that's what I really wanted. Okay. So you walk out the door? Yep. And raise money quickly, or...? Yeah, I raised money relatively quickly, and I, I started an enterprise software company. 
And uh, I had come from a trading environment where I could throw phones at people and they would show up to work the next day. Mm-hmm. And so for the first two years of my enterprise software company, I was probably one of the worst CEOs ever. Mm-hmm. Um, I Were just, you still throwing phones? I wasn't throwing phones, but I think I got lulled into a sense of complacency because when the crisis hit, no one could go anywhere. There were no jobs. Mm-hmm. And so nobody left the company. And I, I misinterpreted that as people really enjoying the environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reality was, uh, you know, I just, I was ill-prepared. I was 29 years old when I started mm-hmm. the business. I had no mentorship in terms of how to run a so company. you're just an asshole. Really. Uh, well, yeah, I, I was. Um, and and I, I had a very harsh realization. I, I sat down a couple years into it with my co-founders and, and I said, you know, how do you think it's going? I think it's going great. And they, they kind of paused and you know, kind of, we're looking at the floor, and uh-huh. finally one of them said, "You're the worst CEO ever." Uh-huh. And I went through the various stages of, you know, first it was, "Well, no, I'm not," and then mm-hmm. you don't understand how hard I work, and, mm-hmm. and ultimately, you know, sobbed in the corner about how bad of a CEO I was. Okay, right. so so you were the enterprise software company. It did what? Uh, did wealth management software? Wealth management software, and how did that do? It did fine. We ultimately sold that to Broadridge, and, mm-hmm. and I left. And at the time, we had 130 people in that company. Wow. And I said, you know, I, I, I'll never run a 130-person company again. So I started too big? Entr- yeah, too big, too many challenges, too many uh, personalities. Yeah. Enterprise software is a pretty tough business to begin with. Mm-hmm. And I, I was pushing pretty hard to, to move, uh, move into software as a service, which is now called the cloud, obviously. But, uh, you know, I wasn't able to, to affect that change. And, and so... It was a great experience, and, and it was a fine outcome, but at the end of the day, um, you know, it wasn't what I was really looking for. Right. And so I went back and started a hedge fund mm-hmm. uh, to go back into the markets and to have four people working with me instead right. of 130. And you know, that was a, a great change and a great transition for me. You liked it? Yeah. Well, I love I love the markets. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I was at Wells, uh, I was running proprietary trading in 1997 when the Asian currency crisis happened in 98 when, when Russia defaulted. Uh, so going back into the markets in, in 2006, seven, you know, a little bit of a heyday. And then 2008 changed the strategy a little bit before everything went bad um, and ended up working with uh, just a couple of very large family offices and, and running their capital. And uh, it was in a situation and actually it, the genesis of SoFi happened in 2008 when the world was falling apart. Um, one of the families that I worked with came to me and said, the banking crisis breaks every 25 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, why don't you figure out a better model? And, mm-hmm. uh, and stop banking crises. Yeah, because the, the it was actually Gordon Getty that came to me to say this, and, and I think Gordon's been vocal about this that you know it's an inherently unstable system because of the amount of leverage in it. Sure. And so they start lending, having bad lending practices. Well, the the, the issue is if you're levered ten to one, you don't mm-hmm. have a lot of room to sure. make mistakes. Sure. And, and so, it gets to that point. Uh, inevitably, uh, inevitably gets to that point. That's that's one of the fallbacks of FDIC insurance. It's mm-hmm. an agency problem, and it incents you to lever like that, and so. Um, but but it was impacting people directly, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what I was most concerned about and where I thought there was an opportunity. So I, I reached out to um, someone I'd known for a while, Chris Larson, who was the founder of Prosper. Sure. And, uh, and I looked at what Chris was doing in the peer-to-peer lending space. And I, I really liked the idea of disintermediating banks. Um, I think Chris was, was ahead of his time at that point. It was in 2008 when, when we first spoke. But, uh, you know, it stuck with me, the idea of a model that could connect sources and uses of capital more efficiently than the banking system. So you hadn't been really in lending. You had been doing trading more than anything, correct? This is not – I mean, you're a banker, but you're really – Yeah, I, I did a lot of structured product work for the lending mm-hmm. groups, though. So um, – and I was very involved with, with a lot of the aspects of the bank around the balance sheet and balance sheet hedging. And, and so, mm-hmm. you know, I knew the consumer loan book extremely well. 
but I wasn't a consumer lender. And, and I think that's actually helped in a lot of ways. I think sometimes you need to so come you didn't know what mistake you could be making. Well, or you, you didn't have preconceived notions. That, that's exactly right. That's yeah. exactly right. And we, and we see that all the time is, you know, is within our organization, particularly around our mortgage business, where, you know, it's often beneficial to bring someone who's not been in that industry over because you need that fresh perspective. Right. So you, you were interested in what they were doing at Prosper, the idea of lending, that this was a broken environment. Most people have thought this for a long, long, long time. I mean, right. it's been in movies. It's been in, like, bad lenders, bad bankers, right. crises like this. So your concept was, I'm going to improve the lending system so that it works. Well, well I think the, the, the challenge was, and, and why I didn't end up doing something with Chris or doing something at that point in time, was, you know, traditionally what's, what's made banking unassailable is FDIC insurance. Mm-hmm. So how do you compete with an entity that has zero marginal cost of funds? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very hard to do. And, and so... At the time, it wasn't the right opportunity, although there was a, a glimmer of hope in terms of a way to, to attack the industry. It was actually in 2010, um, I went down, uh, ended up doing a fellowship at Stanford. So at that point, I'd been staring at a Bloomberg screen almost my entire career mm-hmm. and wasn't getting any smarter with a blinking at me. So I, I went down to Stanford, serendipitously met my co-founders at SoFi, and we were talking about this affinity-based lending model. Mm-hmm. And there was a, an asset class right in front of us, which was student loans, and 65% of the students at the Graduate School of Business borrow. And uh, we said, boy, this is a great product where we could connect alumni to invest in a fund, lend to students, create the social contract. Mm-hmm. Makes all the sense. Which has in the been world. done by students. It was done at Georgetown when I was there. There was a similar. And it's a great model. Mm-hmm. And, and there's there's the whole community thesis around repayment that you don't want to default into your community, and, and it's extremely strong. We see this in microfinance, but but was really really the, the light bulb moment for us, and and where the opportunity opened up was. I couldn't understand why students at Stanford were paying 6.8 and 7.9% loan rates when they hadn't had a domestic default in 30 years. Because people are dumb about money. And Well, because that was their option, right? That right. was their only option. And, and so I, I went back to Wells Fargo and I asked some of, the, some of the folks there, why don't you go to Stanford and lend at six? Because you get all the business. And, and what was very clear was they said, look, with Dodd-Frank, with the crisis, with all the regulations, consumer lending has become very, very hard for us mm-hmm. and in all kinds of dimensions. And, and that's where finally it was... What had traditionally been their comparative advantage, their moat, the FDIC insurance, had turned into a disadvantage in a mm-hmm. lot of ways because of the regulatory burden that came with it and, and some of the, the, the hurdles that they had sure. relating to that insurance. And, and so that's so where they couldn't create a competitive product that was even more better for the, the consumer yeah, and they, possibly better for themselves. They, they left a void. Mm-hmm. Um, but to me, that was just one dimension. There's a financial dimension, but there's a lot of other dimensions in, that we can talk about as, as we talk about SoFi that, that need to be fulfilled. Um, but there was a void that was there. And and so the way I like to think about being an entrepreneur is I like to go after greenfield opportunities. Sure. I, I don't want to go and start a business to compete with Wells Fargo on day one. Although many people in Silicon Valley had Max Levshin here last week, and he was talking about the idea of, you know, you want to disrupt this. You want to wreck it. I'm just talking to a bunch of gas entrepreneurs who are driving a truck around San Francisco right now, gas and people are disrupting, the breaking the system. Obviously, in CES, there was breaking the car. Yeah, um, and, I, and I think you know if you take the the opposite view. So you know Peter Thiel in his book, I think mm-hmm. one of the one of the things he said very well was find a vertical that nobody's in, build it, and then show it's important. Mm-hmm. And and I think that that's what we did with student loan refinancing. Mm-hmm. So we went after that. Nobody was in there. The product didn't exist. Well, people were in there. They just had a product that was. Actually, nobody was there. No, so nobody was doing uh, student loan refinancing mm-hmm. uh, when we came in. We actually created. Oh, they were that doing product. financing in the first that, place. That's right. That's right. Right. And and so. 
so to me, the opportunity really opened up because it was clear that the banks were retreating from a lot of the consumer lending. There was a void there mm-hmm. um, in a situation where we can go in and actually establish a beachhead into what we think is a phenomenal customer. You know, mm-hmm. sort of this, my, my general view is if you're between 25 and 40 years old, the, the banking industry is not designed to deliver solutions for you. Mm-hmm. And the banking industry is very or, oriented around 60-year-old boomers with lots of money. Mm-hmm. And, and so there's a huge opportunity way beyond student lending. It's really just broad consumer lending to go after. So you started SoFi with these founders when you were at Stanford, when you saw these. Yep. And we did a, in 2011, we did a really small fund. We went to 40 alumni, put $50,000 a piece into a $2 million fund, lent $20,000 out to 100 students to demonstrate that it worked. Mm-hmm. And then in 2012, we said, you know what, we're going to scale this. We're going to refinance loans. How did you go to the people at Stanford? Like, give me $50,000, please. Uh, you know, one of the benefits of Stanford and why I think it's a, a phenomenal place for any entrepreneur to start a business is the network is so tight. Mm-hmm. And and so um, I had a lot of relationships who were Stanford alumni from my previous company and from mm-hmm. my hedge fund. And, and so, you know, people knew me well and, and we had that dialogue. So it wasn't difficult to do. But uh, it, you know, it happened very quickly, and I, I think it, it's it's very hard to imagine that happening in other other university systems outside of Stanford. It's just it, it's a very unique place to start a business. And then you went to the students themselves and said, "Yeah, we're going to take your crappy loans and turn them into fantastic loans." Well, so it was interesting because we went to the students, and well, we went to the financial aid office, and we had our, our product offered. In the beginning, people didn't take the product because uh, so this was what was fascinating. So it was a better rate, it was mm-hmm. a better product. And people weren't taking it. And so we sat outside the financial aid office and we were for people that didn't take the product and accosted them and said, why didn't you take this product? It's better. Mm-hmm. And what we discovered, I think was one of the most important learnings that we had early in the business was people said, well, I don't know who you are. Right. And to yep. me, I, I don't think that mattered because I'm lending you money. Mm-hmm. And, and so why do you care who I am? If I disappear, that's wonderful. Maybe you don't have to pay me back. But, right. but the concern was, no, I don't know who you are. I so. know Wells Fargo. I know... Whoever I don't know if you're going to call me at dinner, if you're going to try to sell me something stupid. You could be a loan shark gonna, That's Stanford. exactly right. Do you, right. Do you, you don't look like a loan shark. I'm, I'm definitely not I don't a think shark. there are many hanging around the financial aid office at Stanford. Not right now. But, I'm going to but, take your knees out. Yeah, it, it probably ebbs and flows. But but right now, it's a, a, a nice environment. Well, it's interesting because right now, there's a lot of uh, dis- disruptive financial issues. And I think about that. Like, who are you? Like, you have my financial information. You To me, it was so counterintuitive. And it, it was such a good learning experience. And, and it really set the precedent of being more data-driven as mm-hmm. opposed to intuition or conjecture-driven as a business. Meaning, um, explain that. Well, I think a lot of times you come into a situation with assumptions about how things should work mm-hmm. and, and why things are happening. Of course it's a fantastic and, loan uh, thing, right? Well, well, right. Or, or of course this is where we'll get people. Or, of mm-hmm. course, this is an effective channel to, to acquire mm-hmm. customers. And, of course, this is a wonderful color and a beautiful image and so forth. At the end of the day, you, you kind of have to become egoless and drop all that and just be driven by data. And so if something doesn't work, you realize it very quickly, you iterate fast, you put something out there that does. And, and, and sometimes it could be something you think looks horrible. So or, what or, worked? How did you convince that students, like, who the hell are we, you? We did an outreach. So we did a town hall. We talked about what we were doing, why we were doing it. And, and then we had all the demand we could, have, we, could, we could deliver into. Right. I see. Interesting. All right. We'll be back in a second with Mike Cagney from SoFi. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. A Casper mattress is one of a kind. It's obsessively engineered at a shockingly fair price. It has just the right sink and just the right bounce. Two technologies, latex foam and memory foam, come together for better nights and brighter days. And then there's the risk-free trial and return policy. 
Try sleeping on a Casper for 100 days with free delivery and painless returns. These mattresses are made in America. It's $500 for a twin-size mattress and $950 for a king-size mattress. Get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash recode and using the promo code recode. That's casper.com slash R-E-C-O-D-E and using the promo code RECODE. Terms and conditions apply. We're here with Mike Cagney, who is the CEO and co-founder of SoFi, which is an online lending marketplace which has started with refinancings at Stanford University. Mike, you had trouble getting people to take your fantastic loan refinancings, but then you did. You had a town hall. You explained yourself. They realized you weren't a frightening, scary person might show up at their house and break their knees or anything like that. Once you did that, what happened? Where did you go from there when you saw it worked in one place? So, so what was happening at the time was we were going out raising alumni money to fund these loans, and we realized we wanted to expand, and, and we added another four business schools and went out and started raising money from alumni and the other programs. Mm-hmm. And we very quickly realized there was a huge opportunity here. And, and at the time, I was flying around the country raising twenty, fifty, hundred thousand dollars $100,000 at a pop. So and small, it, small it, little. It wasn't, wasn't going to scale. No, no. <laughs> and, and so I went out to New York in 2012, and I pitched uh, all the, the major banks, Goldman, mm-hmm. Morgan Stanley, Credit Suisse, Bank America. And I said, look, there's a phenomenal opportunity here. This is what they call baby bathwater asset class. It's mm-hmm. you know, student lending but Why did they call it that? Because student, I may not let that go by. <clears throat> well, stu- student lending in general was, was constantly in the press around it's a disaster, it's a problem, it's the next crisis. Mm-hmm. But the reality is there's hundreds of billions of dollars of phenomenal credit within that pool. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And, and, and so... You know, we're making this case, and, and our very heterodox approach to underwriting, which is not a FICO-based approach, but sure. a cash flow-based approach. We're going to talk about FICO in a minute. I hate FICO. Well, you and me both. So, uh, But the challenge was that there was this huge opportunity. We weren't raising capital enough. We were making this pitch, and everybody in New York was extremely nice and cordial to me. And, and in fact, they all told me how smart I was, which meant hmm. I would never get money from Because <laughs> that's kind of a, 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 as a general yeah. rule. The nicer people are, the less they're going to give you. Mm-hmm. And um, so I came back to San Francisco a little bit uh, humbled and frustrated in terms of how to address this chicken and egg problem because people wouldn't lend us money because they couldn't see loan performance. We couldn't mm-hmm. generate loan performance without money. Sure. So I did something relatively heterodox. I went out and raised $80 million of equity capital okay. to put on the balance sheet. And everyone that was looking at us from the outside said, you know, Mike Cagney, you're an idiot. You just raised $80 million to lend out at 6%. That's mm-hmm. not a very good business model. And, of sure. course, it's not a good business model. Right. Well, who did you raise it from? Just VCs out here? No. So I raised it from a combination of folks. So Baseline, Steve Anderson's fund was the lead. Sure. Um, Instagram. Uh, that's right. And uh, and DCM. And then uh, a large amount was from RenRen, mm-hmm. uh, which is a Chinese yeah. internet company. A very unique partnership that came out of How that. How did you think of that? Um, well, I, I knew Joe. <laughs> and I think Joe was extremely passionate about uh, financial services. Services and the opportunity for disruption in financial services. So um, when he got a chance to participate, and there were some other potential synergies that came out of that relationship, uh, he convinced his board to, to come in. And so what we were able to do is take that money, kickstart a lending program, and then in early January of 2013, Morgan Stanley said, look, we've seen enough. We, we, we've seen enough dispersion between your performance and the government performance mm-hmm. that we believe the, the thesis. So they gave us a warehouse line of financing, and which is effectively just a, a, a loan to, fund, loan. to fund a loan our to loans. Loan, yeah. That's right. And so throughout the course of 2013, we began to build the business up. And at the end of 13, we did the first uh, rated securitization and market space uh, lending. 
Um, it was a $155 million, $156 million transaction that we did. But it, it kind of opened up the institutional market to understanding the value of these loans. So they want to loan you money to loan. That's right. And, and again, they didn't want to say, oh, maybe we should do this ourselves, or is it too small? Or w- so, so it's a really interesting question. We, we also had a lot of banks that began to participate and buy loans from us. And, mm-hmm. and to me... And, and you all repackage these, them and sell them. Well, but, but even on a whole loan basis. Right. And, and to me, the, the 800-pound gorilla in the room in every one of these conversations was, why don't you do it yourself? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that we came to a point of, of comfort that nobody had the brand and the strategy and the acquisition methodology that we had. And, and, and consequently, it was very difficult for a bank to come in and, and position themselves as a SoFi. Mm-hmm. And, and that was important because we, we tried to build the business on four key tenants, which was one, product fit. So we want to make sure that we're delivering a solution people wanted. Student loan refinancing is a great example, but we're doing the same stuff in mortgage and personal loans and wealth management. Mm-hmm. Two is delivery. So we wanted to do everything through the phone. Um, and, and we view the phone as a ubiquitous branch, right? Mm-hmm. So brick and mortar is gone. Your phone is what matters. No branches anymore. No branches. Mm-hmm. Um, three is is service. So we wanted a service level that people would evangelize the business. And that's right. important. This was easy. Uh, right. Because, because half our volume comes from referral. So mm-hmm. it, it was critical to get that. And four was the most differentiating aspect was this concept of alignment, that we wanted to align with our members. And, mm-hmm. and what I mean by that is, we invest in career resources for them. We help them with their resume. We help them with interview coaching. Mm-hmm. Um, if you lose your job, we get them reemployed. We've done it over 165 times where mm-hmm. within 91 days we've gotten someone to a higher paying job. Mm-hmm. If you want to start a company, we help you raise capital. We've done it, mm-hmm. I think, 48 times now. Um, it, we hold networking events two to three times a week across the U.S. You're trying US. to be their whole banker. You're trying to move into a bigger role well, after doing the loan. We're trying to get people to recast it rather than a transactional banking relationship mm-hmm. into the concept of money, career relationships. Mm-hmm. And, and to us, that's where the real win is. Mm-hmm. And, and it, Isn't and there, that what LinkedIn's trying to do? What? Well, I think Lincoln's definitely trying to do that to some degree on career and mm-hmm. certain kinds of relationships. I think I think the money pieces might be missing mm-hmm. there, although you know potentially LinkedIn could buy us and integrate that money piece mm-hmm. in. Are they buying um, you and integrating that money piece? No, in? no. Right. Um, and and we, we'd we'd be a hard acquisition just mm-hmm. just because of the dynamic personalities that we have in our team. Yeah. But but uh, you know we want people to rethink that relationship, and and I think in doing that we position ourselves in a way that that an existing bank can't cast themselves in that light. Right. right? It's still trans. Transaction oriented, it's you know checking accounts and, and mortgages and so forth, which are well, critical. But why, you, you wouldn't imagine them seeing that that's the way it's going. Sort of like the television industry or the music industry is that they need yeah. to stop selling these albums in stores. Yeah, it, it's funny because um, I, I have a lot of big banks. So a big four bank came out recently and asked me to come and, and give them a presentation. And, and they're a capital market provider of us, and so I did it. And I talked about um, one of the challenges they have. And their, their view was that banking was under attack of disaggregation, the idea that, that there are all these startups that are going to take different slices of the bank out. Mm-hmm. And, and I said, I think that's actually the, the absolute wrong idea. The, the value of the customer, the relationship is what matters. Mm-hmm. And I said, what, what your issue is is around product fit and delivery. And right. I, I demonstrated this, and I took uh, a couple of the folks in this meeting. I couldn't take all of them. There were about 20, but I took a couple of the senior folks out. And we went to a branch of which I have a banking account, mm-hmm. and I'm a private banking customer there. Mm-hmm. And I walked in, and I said, I want a mortgage. And they, you know, I went from having to, to sit at the teller window to, to going to sit in a nice little desk with a green mm-hmm. lampshade and some comfortable mm-hmm. chairs. And, and the first thing they said is, Mr. Kegney, this is great. We're, we're, we're really happy you want a mortgage. They gave me a blank piece of paper. And the first thing I had to do was write my name on it. Mm-hmm. And I, I said, this is all I need. And I took it and I left. And, and I said, look, this is the dimension in which you're missing. Because one, first off, I had to go to a branch right. between 9 a.m. and 5 right. p.m. Right. 
I was not treated particularly friendly by the mm-hmm. person at the window, but mm-hmm. but they they were nice to me once they realized who I was. But they gave me a piece of paper that I had to write my name on. They know who I am. They have the account. They have the relationship. Right. And I think losing that synergy, creating friction from product to product. You wanted something more, and they didn't want to give it to you. That's right. I mean, why, why would I need to t- write what my right. name is? I, I do that, that all the time. And, and, and it's extremely frustrating. And, and so it should be as easy as, oh, we already know all about you. Here's right. your rate. Right. We are here with Mike Cagney of SoFi. We'll be right back. Are you an entrepreneur or startup looking for legal help with your financing, acquisition, or incorporation? If so, then you should consider checking out Walker Corporate Law. Walker Corporate Law is a different kind of law firm. Unlike traditional law firms, they only have lawyers with 10 to 25 years of experience, which means you're getting personal attention from a senior lawyer, not a junior lawyer getting on the job training. They also encourage fixed fees because they believe that when lawyers bill by the hour, it rewards inefficiency. So check them out at walkercorporatelaw.com. Or you can call the founder, Scott, at 415-979-9999. That's walkercorporatelaw.com or 415-979-9999. You know, that's an interesting experience because I just refinanced. And one of the issues was around a FICO score of my partner and who was has much, much money and couldn't, her FICO score, she doesn't pay a J. Crew bill. Right. That's the end of it. And, and it's, Enormously wealthy, cannot get a loan. It was out, really fascinating. And I, and I had I had these long sort of philosophical discussions with one of the lenders we talked to, like, you're an idiot. And it came down to, you're an idiot. I can't believe you're... And they themselves were like, yes, we're idiots. Because up, this is what matters. Yeah, it's absolutely crazy. I mean, we, we see it all the time. We see people where, where they didn't pay a $2 medical charge mm-hmm. and, and their FICO score gets hit or their Vantage score gets hit. And, and you know, at the end of the day, I, I think... FICO score is, is a little bit of a crutch. Mm-hmm. It's the same concept of, you know, why do you hire Stanford MBAs? Because, well, if they got into Stanford, they must be okay. So, right. and, and I think the reality is, you know, our, our view on it is good credit will have often high FICOs, but a high FICO isn't necessarily good credit. So why are you, are we, you use FICO too. You guys, we don't use FICO. You don't use FICO, but it's no. one of the indicators, right? Is, are there other indicators? Because a firm is trying to do it with, I don't know, your social, you know, there, there's all kinds of schemes around what makes a good credit? Yeah, and I, I think you have to be very careful about about what you do because the uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is very particular about what can and can't go into underwriting, mm-hmm. and and they're they're doing that to uh, address any potential disparate impact that comes from you know for example if I say I'm going to use LinkedIn and and there's a, a, a protected class that isn't fairly represented on LinkedIn mm-hmm. that's a problem right mm-hmm. and so I think we boiled it down to the very simple mechanics which is we will look at your credit history. We want to make sure you didn't uh, short sell a mortgage two years ago, mm-hmm. right? It, the fact that you missed a J. Crew bill is, is somewhat of an irrelevant characteristic mm-hmm. for us. More importantly, we want to make sure that you make more money than you spend today. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that is the single greatest driver of credit performance. So you because, think all these ones with, around your social standing, around your friends, around – there's all – I hear a different one every – Yeah, and the, the problem is that we're an extremely – first off, we're an extremely virtuous credit cycle right now. Mm-hmm. And so I, I've said – So public, everybody looks good. I, I've joked that my daughter could come up with a scoring system based on what band you like and uh-huh. it would look like it works right now. <laughs> and, you know, like My Chemical Romance, you get the, the best rate. Mm-hmm. So it, it – Katy Perry, you're finished. Katy Perry, you're, country music, you're in yeah. deep, deep trouble. Yeah. Um, and, and so – 
I think one, you have to be cognizant of that. You can't be lulled into a false sense of complacency. But two, you're actually not allowed to do a lot of that. And and if you're very small, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau isn't going to come after you. But as you get larger, it's a bigger issue, mm-hmm. and you have to be very very careful about about what goes into the underwriting methodology. So, the, what's the most important thing around credit? Like, what's the indicator? Are there is there anything the internet or data can do? It's just you make more money than you spend. So I think you're. I think that's the, pretty much how it's been since yeah, yeah, the beginning it, of time, that, right? Exactly right. So the internet doesn't help at all. Um, I think the internet can help you with fraud, mm-hmm. and so I think things like LinkedIn uh, are effective mediums to address fraud mm-hmm. so that you know it's a legitimate person. You and, know who that person and, is. And not, you know, 300 fake accounts created out of Bulgaria. Right. Um, so you can get some legitimacy off of that. But from an underwriting standpoint, the most important thing is that you make more money than you spend. So why is this a technology company? Why are banks nervous about technology? I mean, where's the landscape? What happens to the modern bank? Well, it's not the same as in music here, where it is, a, you know, technology does change the situation. That's right. I mean, there, there's different elements of technology. So there's, there's technology from an infrastructure standpoint, which we would be facetious to think that a bank couldn't replicate some of that technology. But it's right. critical to us in terms of being able to scale. I think the advent of social has become so integral to customer acquisition, Acquis- to evangelism, okay. um, and, and that's really where it is. It's it's your presence within the social landscape, social media, and, and building evangelists within the company to go out and, and carry that message, and, and that's incredibly powerful. Can you do that in, in insurance? You guys could move Absolutely. into that and, and other areas. Yeah, and, and insurance is, is a very interesting one where you can leverage the community aspect, right. and, and the idea... You know, a lot of what we do, I joke, is it's it's going back sixty years. Mm-hmm. So you know, from a lending standpoint, yeah. we kind of lend like Jimmy Stewart did. Yeah, and I'm it's a wonderful of, life. Yeah, I know ins- you, Phil. I know you. <laughs> That's right. And and on the insurance side, it's the same premise. It's still a mutual concept that if you can get a pool of people who know each other, who have a common deductible, mm-hmm. uh, then you can address issues of moral hazard and adverse selection. And you actually generate a, a much better insurance. So, are pool. you a technology company? What do you? We're, you're we're, lending we're, marketplace. You're using the internet. You don't have branches, so people would easily say, "Oh, it's an internet finance." Company. Yeah, I, I think that technology is critical to what we do, um, and and it's integral to what we do. And I think social is integral to what we do. But I, I think at the end of the day, what we're really trying to build is a lifestyle company. Mm-hmm. So, and it, it goes back to this concept of money, career, relationships, and, mm-hmm. and that's what we think. Wait, the are you value doing dating? Wait, I mean. Uh, as a matter of fact, we are going to be doing dating very soon. So I, I think no, we are you serious? I'm absolutely serious. Meaning what? Well, well, here's here's what happens. You seem so, like a nice boy with a nice house. Well, but... you you have you've been have a responsible credit history, mm-hmm. and you make more money than you spend. That mm-hmm. that, that seems like an attractive characteristic, and mm-hmm. I think there was some recent uh, writing that that actually is a necessary component to good relationships. But but what happens is we these two to three events we hold across the country every week. A lot of reasons people come there are for professional reasons, for networking and so forth. But a lot of it's personal. They want to yeah. meet other people. Mm-hmm. And and we've said, this is happening so much, we're just going to codify this. So mm-hmm. we are going to have a SoFi dating application. Oh, my God. And SoFi members can date other SoFi members. And, mm-hmm. and it's not just because I want to run an ad saying, when did your bank ever get you a date? Yeah. Uh, but it's because I think there's actually Why value not? to it. Yeah. So um, in that vein, so you're going to start these events. You, you The people get together and talk, what? Fine. You just give them different content. Sure. I mean, sometimes it's a happy hour. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's a dinner. We had, we had a great one in New York recently where Arthur Levitt uh, chaired the dinner, mm-hmm. the former SEC commissioner. Yeah. And what we like to do is is deliver information to our folks. We like to get a lot of information back from our members in terms of what's working for them, what's not, what they need in the marketplace. Helps drive a lot of our product roadmap. And, yeah. and so it's and you get people to come to these because I get invited by Fidelity and the various. I never go to anything. So so it's interesting because I uh, Arthur was very skeptical mm-hmm. uh, about these social events. Yeah. They are always oversubscribed. Really? Yeah, universally. 
And I, I just had one in my house uh, a few weeks ago, wine tasting, and uh, and it was great. And I got a chance to meet a bunch of folks I never would have been, uh-huh. been able to meet. You see, I want a bank that doesn't bother me in any way until I want something. But that's okay, and, yeah. and that's the thing is is you know I'm not going to harangue you until you come to my house for wine. When you want to, you come, and when you don't, you don't. Okay. All right, that'll be never because I know I not you particularly, but you know I don't want to socialize with my financial people. But what does that mean for the modern bank? What ha- I mean, obviously the whole idea there's not going to be tellers anymore. That's a long ago kind of thing. But what does the modern bank look like? I think that there's a couple of different threads in which this could could manifest. I think one is you could get a disaggregation of deposit taking and lending. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other is I think there could be what we're trying to accomplish, which is a recasting of, of what the expectation of a bank is. It's it's no longer transactional financial products. It's a much broader set of services where they're aligning and they're, they're sitting rather than across the table from you next to you to help you accomplish what you need to in your life. And will you be taking deposits? Uh, we absolutely plan on having a function of doing that in the next year. And then you don't need to go to... Ultimately, we want you to be able to cut the cord entirely. Right. Okay. All right. Uh, we are here with Mike Cagney of SoFi. We'll be right back. If you're listening to this, you probably already know that Recode Decode is twice a week, every Monday and Thursday. And now we've got a new show. It's called Too Embarrassed to Ask, and it's hosted by Lauren Good of The Verge and me, Kara Swisher. Every Friday, we answer your burning tech questions and review the latest gadgets. And we also like to bring special guests along for the ride. You can find all of our podcasts at recode.net slash podcasts. And you can subscribe to Too Embarrassed to Ask at iTunes.com slash Too Embarrassed to Ask. Hello, I'm Peter Kafka. You are someone listening to Recode Decode. And if you're enjoying this interview, you won't want to miss Code Media 2016. Last year, Nick Denton joined us. So did Chelsea Handler. So did Mark Cuban. Let that image sink into your head for a minute. And now you can listen to some audio of that. I mean, when we started AudioNet in 1995, we started saying bits are bits. The money is still in TV. Facebook is clearly the strongest and most powerful. We can't afford to be dependent on them because we have something that we want to do. It was too much attention. I wasn't excited to see me anymore, so I could only imagine how other people felt. Fun, right? This year we're going to have John Skipper from ESPN, Shane Smith from Vice Media, a bunch of other folks, some of whom we have yet to announce but are pretty cool. You can view the full speaker lineup and register at recode.net slash events. We'll see you there very soon. We're here with Mike Cagney of SoFi, which is a really interesting online lending company. But it's not an online lending. It's just a lending company. And you happen to use online tools to get people there. Well, and, and the only way you can get a loan is online. Well, really right. through your phone. So but, it's an but, online lending that's company. Right. But one thing that you're doing is very traditional. You had a Super Bowl ad. Which internet companies love to buy, and it's always, you know, every year some internet company does that. We're going to listen to it now for just a little bit. Here's what it sounded like. Jim is great. Sarah is not great at all. This guy, never been great. No. Now she's great. But all these people, there's not a great one in the bunch. His mom thinks he's great. She's wrong. She's great. Wrong kind of great. And Brandon is great. So we gave him a great loan rate on his $50,000 loan. Great loans for great people. Find out if you're great at SoFi.com. So, Mike, this is a great ad. I actually liked it. So many internet uh, Super Bowl ads are terrible <laughs> for yeah. the most part. And what were you trying to communicate there? I think what we're trying to show is, is SoFi is really an aspirational model, mm-hmm. that, that we want people to want to be part of that community. They want right. to aspire to be part of that community. I think... There, there's so much of that in branding today where it really falls short. It's not genuine. Mm-hmm. And and so I think the ad really captures that idea that, uh, you know, there's a lot of people out there that have tremendous potential and we want to align with them and be part, be their partners. Now, the first ad you had going into the Super Bowl, though, you were scaring, doing the scary bank thing, like the 1984 
yeah. Apple commercial, pictures and, of empty banks, scary <laughs> banks, and everyone's been in that bank. Sure, and I, and I think the first one was really to set the stage that you could imagine something different than banking. And right. the second ad was, this is what it is. Right. Right. And so the, the two are very synergistic. So, but the idea is banks suck, essentially. Like, the, the whole feel, and they do, they do. They're meant to be scary to you. They're meant to feel... Well, they're impersonal, right. and and you know I think that they miss on a lot of things that are very important to people. One is is keeping your capital local. For example, mm-hmm. when you deposit money in a bank, you have no idea where it goes and mm-hmm. who's, who's who it's lent back out to. But I think most importantly, it's it's this idea that a bank has really become a utility, mm-hmm. and it's not aligned to your to your interest. It's not your partner. It's really the person on the other side of the table. The idea right. that hey, if I miss a payment on a loan, the bank's going to call me up and tell me they're going to take my car. Right. Whereas at SoFi, if you miss a payment on a loan, we're going to call up and say, do you have an employment problem? Can we help you get a job? Sure. And, and you think about how orthogonal those two things are, and, and and the latter is a much better way to deal with credit. Right. So so these ads. What when do you think you needed to do these? You were talking about this idea that. Online is great marketing. Your social events are great marketing. But I, this is the thing many people do. The yeah. TV is still the great place to do marketing. Yeah, I, I think that there's obviously a huge amount of reach through the Super Bowl in terms of, of households. And and as much press as we've gotten and as much uh, fanfare as SoFi has picked up, I'm always surprised at how few people actually know what SoFi is. Right, And, right. and so this was an opportunity for us to really set the stage. And, right. and, and it was something we couldn't do a year ago because we didn't have a comprehensive set of solutions. And, and it, would, it wouldn't be genuine for us to ask people to aspire to something different than banking. Mm-hmm. I think we're now in a situation where we can legitimately deliver into that. So you're that trying to make SoFi a verb, like Google and that's things right. like that. SoFi. Uh, we want you to Social SoFi. finance, right? Is that, that's, is that, uh, SoFi is short for social so finance. Social we, finance. We, we don't use social finance very often because right. that, that means people think we save the whales, which right. you know, we don't. But right. so, so we go with SoFi. So the concept in this is don't bank SoFi. What is that saying? Well, I, I think it's it's really the idea that, that rather than a transactional um, impersonal, kind of obfuscated traditional system, go to something where you're engaged, you're local, um, you're interacting, and your business is valued, and mm-hmm. you're getting someone who's aligned with you. Right. So when you're doing these, what do you, these are expensive ads, correct? Now, you've raised a lot of money. We're going to talk about that with the final part, but sure. um, what do you expect to happen? Is that they, who is this so fine? Let me find out. Let me, what do you want people to do? Yeah, I, I think the, it's really to raise awareness, uh-huh. and it's to get people to look at SoFi, to go to SoFi.com, and look at what's there, and to reach out to their friends and say, "Hey, are you, you know, are you a SoFi member? How's the experience been?" Um, it's to promote our own members to give them some uh, here. Some, look at what I'm doing. Yeah, some kinda. some air cover to go out and talk to their friends about SoFi. And your goal ultimately is to get more people to refine. This is a, a big. How well, big an area is well, this? Well, we want people to refinance their student loans, but we want people to take mortgages from mortgages. us. We want them to take personal loans from us. We want to do everyone's wealth management, mm-hmm. something that we give away, which for you free started with one of your first. That's things. right. That's right. What's wrong with that area? I think the, the biggest problem in wealth management today is it's risk-based. And the reality is, if you go to a typical wealth manager, the first question they ask you is, what would you do if the stock market fell 20%? Mm-hmm. And I think it's a ridiculous question to ask someone because, the crap well, well and first off, you don't know what you're going to do until it happens. Mm-hmm. And second off, I'm not sure what that has to do with investing. Mm-hmm. Investing is about opportunity cost, right? If, if I don't spend the money today, I don't buy better wine, mm-hmm. it's because I want something down the road. And, and re- you really need to put context around it. And so... The true nature of investing is what do I want to do with my money and how much risk should I take to hit to maximize the likelihood sure. of that happening? Sure. So you want to expand out into a lot of things. And right now you do lending, wealth mortgage. management. Right. So when you wanted to do this ad, the premise around the ad itself is this is a great person, this is not. Like you're trying to, it's a club essentially. That's right. It, again, it goes back to that aspirational concept right. that, that we want people to aspire to be part of SoFi. But this goes to, to the point we were talking about earlier. 
to do that, we wanted to be very transparent about what it took to be a SoFi member. Mm -hmm. And this is why FICO dropped out of our equation, because mm -hmm. that's anything but transparent. And so we tried to clear uh, or lay out a very clear and explicit path in which you can become a SoFi member. Right. And this is what you need to do. And right. those are SoFi members in the ad? That's right. Right. So people who are, so not the ones that are not great. That's right. Like, those aren't the, <laughs> hey, you were rejected. Would you like we, to be in our Super Bowl? We, as creative as that would have been, that wasn't the case. Yeah, so. suck. Um, what did you want to do? You want to do something different, correct? Uh, well, I, it's not that I wanted to do something different. I actually love the ad. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's great. I think it encapsulates everything that we're doing. I, I've always wanted to do an ad where you had two friends who grew up together and you tracked their life and one was very responsible. and, mm -hmm. and Goofus and, and gallant. Yeah. And one was, you know, never taking anything seriously and they go through college together and they graduate and they share an apartment and, and you see one of them go off to work with his, his briefcase. And I don't know if anyone has a briefcase anymore, but, yeah. and, and, you know, and the other one's sitting on the couch, um, taking a bong hit, watching Kung Fu. Mm -hmm. And then you say, should you be paying the same loan rate? Yeah. Okay. Right. Perfect. Oh, that's good. Well, why didn't you do that? Were you overruled? Is uh, the... I, I've constantly been suppressed in my creativity. Really? So. Okay. All right. Well, you can still make it, right? Uh, I hope so. Yeah. Um, so you, so once this happens, you'll get uh, more attention, presumably. Yep. You've raised, how much money? This is an enormous amount of money. You raised. Yeah. We, we've raised about, 1.4 billion. 1.4 billion. And what's the valuation of your company? Um, we, we don't publicly talk about that, but it's significant multiple. Multiple of that. of that. And the money you've raised is from elsewhere. Again, SoftBank. Yeah. The big money came from... So SoftBank and ThirdPoint um, mm -hmm. were That's two Dan very Loeb and Nikesh Rora. Wow. That's that must right. be an interesting meeting. They both know each other, so yeah. they're, they're both... Of course uh, they do. They're both friends. Um, and when Dan Loeb first invested... Well, he, friends. He, well, when, when Dan Loeb first invested, my wife asked me if he was going to um, write a letter campaign against me. And I said, only if I mess up. Oh, no. So, yeah. you know, Third Point's been a phenomenal partner as a soft Don't bank. be scared of um, Dan. No, it, it, they're great. And, uh, you know, I think what's a little bit different about SoFi is is some of our big investors, you know, we have we have Discovery, another another large hedge fund, um, Renren, Chinese internet company. Mm -hmm. It's it's not a typical... So why is it hedge fund and an Asian investment company? What, what, because I think they immediately resonate with, with the opportunity in financial services. Mm -hmm. I think the Valley struggles a little bit with the concept of, of what financial services means. But what, now it's hot. Now it's the hot thing. Yeah, it, it, it has been. And I think maybe a little bit misguided, maybe a little too hot. Because? Um, because I, I think at the end of the day, uh, you have to be very realistic about, you know, one, whether or not you have a balance sheet. And two, what your real opportunity set is against the banks. So and, what are you worried about? Uh, at the end of the day, we've got a high-class problem right now. We originate over a billion dollars of loans a month, and this year we'll do something like 18 to 20 billion dollars of loans. Mm -hmm. And so um, we don't have a deposit base to fund those loans. So we need to build other forms of capital that we can place loans into the market, mm -hmm. and, and that's a process that's always happening on our end. Mm -hmm. But what about all this, the hotness around? So, I mean, there was an event yesterday. Everyone had a, had a financial services. Andreessen Horowitz is like, we're going to invest in financial disruption. What's the danger? I, I think it's extremely difficult. You know, it's one of those things where it's a highly regulated industry. And one of the most frustrating things about trying to be disruptive in financial services is you need to be part of financial services sure. first to disrupt it. So, you know, for example, we have a broker dealer. I, I wish I didn't have to have one, but I do. Um, we have lending licenses and lend in 49 states. I wish I didn't need that, but I do. And so the more you need to live within the system, the harder it is to change from within. Sure. You can't and, be just a kid in a hoodie just taking your money. Or getting... uh, that's right. And I think, I think the first generation of online lenders, the folks that came in in 2007, 2008, they did try to do that. They did try to take take a, you know, we don't need to be part of this regulatory environment. We're yeah. going to do it our own way in a different way. And, and and they were very, very quickly shut down. Right. Absolutely. You, But you do, I'm going to finish up talking about just very briefly about what you're doing differently from Silicon Valley. You're not really a creature at all of Silicon Valley. You don't have 
VC funds. Well, yeah, outside of Steve and, and David yeah. Chow and, and right. a few other folks, uh, you know, IVPs and investors. So we do sure. have some. We do have some big. But you operate names. in Healdsburg, which is above San Francisco. <laughs> Nobody operates in Healdsburg. Why Healdsburg? So we run our. You loan. Have, it's pretty. I'm guessing you like. It's to live a very up nice there. place, uh, and we we run our loan origination and servicing up there. It's very hard to build a, a loan servicing business out of San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, cost of uh, wages is very high, but also people in San Francisco, that, that's not their aspiration to work in no. loan servicing. Hillsburg, Sonoma County has a very deep service culture up there. Mm-hmm. Um, what we did that that a lot of people shook their heads at when we started the Hillsburg office is I think the going rate for uh, customer service in Sonoma is probably $15 an hour. Mm-hmm. And I looked at that and said, you can't live on $15 an hour up here. And I, I didn't want... Uh, folks working for us where they had to work two jobs or they mm-hmm. were worried about how they're going to make ends meet. And because at the end of the day, so much rides on our customer relationship sure. that, you know, we ended up paying people $20 an hour mm-hmm. and, and up uh, in the Hillsburg office. And, and what that's meant is almost no transition. Very few people leave, uh, but they enjoy the being there. Right? right. And they like talking to our members. How many people do you have there? Now? Uh, 380. We're wow. the largest employer Mostly in Mostly in Hillsburg. Most of your office. Well, well we, we have 380 in Hillsburg alone. Right. And then um, some. 100 in San Francisco. We mm-hmm. have 70 engineers in Montana. Montana. Why Montana? Most people go to like the Ukraine or somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Well, we can fly to Montana pretty easily. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have a good relationship with the folks that, that we started the, the effort with. I think. You know, one of the challenges of building engineering out of San Francisco, again, a little bit different than, than customer services. Uh, I was talking to someone the other day, and they're saying their average engineer life is about four months. They have mm-hmm. that much turnover. They're wow. just constantly getting poached. Mm-hmm. And up in Montana, nobody leaves. And, and we have great full-stack engineers, phenomenal developers. We, we release code two to three times a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, my old software company, we do it once a month. Right. right? And so over the course of a year, you know, we might do five, 600 releases. Um, and and it's just a very good progressive. It's a different culture. Group. You're trying to build a yeah. In terms of general culture, I think I think one of the things that we try to do is is we try to be very aggressive and very risk taking. It's hard to do that within financial services because of how regulated it is. But there's a lot of ambiguity in financial services, and and so as a general organizational principle, we've said, look, we're willing to take risks. We're willing to be wrong. And, and whether that's the fact that we push code out two times a day and sometimes things break or um, the fact that we'll do a loan where it's not clear whether or not we can do the loan, um, we're comfortable taking those kinds of risks and they're important to us. And I, and I think that in general, the the thesis we have in, at SoFi is you should always have a level of discomfort, right? Mm-hmm. Not not that you dread coming into work, but more that there's always something that you're pushing just a little harder than what, what would make you comfortable. So in that vein, I have two very quick questions. What did you do wrong? I, I have a laundry list of things I've done wrong. Most recently. <laughs> um, so I, I think most recently we, we put too much reliance on the securitization market as a way to fund loans. And, and what we haven't done is some of the longer relationship building efforts that we need to have permanent capital partners. But you haven't thrown a phone lately. I haven't thrown a phone in a long time. I stopped yelling a while ago, too. Okay. All right. Uh, so, so no longer the asshole. Uh, I, well, I, my wife could tell you I'm still an asshole periodically, okay. but, right. but uh, no and, phone throwing. And then last question, will you ever have a bank, a branch? Do you think you need one? Do you think there will be banks in the future? I think I think one of the biggest struggles we have right now is we want to deliver Sounds payment like you should solutions. Have a bar, but anyway. <laughs> we should. You want to, we want to deliver payment solutions to our members, and it's very difficult to do that without a bank. The, mm-hmm. the issue is that SoFi itself cannot be a bank. Right. So um, we're navigating and exploring other ways to do that. As uh, I'm serious about a bar. I, I think a bar would a be a, a very good idea. Yeah, but nothing. You feel phys- that you need a physical. Location. No, I, I don't. I don't think we need we need the branch. I, I think that you know we've tested. 
in, in microwaves tested pop-ups and, and they're actually very effective. But mm -hmm. in terms of a permanent location, I just I, I mm -hmm. think it's it's orthogonal in everything that we're doing. And my very last question, if you had to look at another company you think is being very innovative, just I always ask everybody this, what's the what's something you're like, wow, that's well, well, I think you know, in, in our domain in particular, I think uh, could be you know, anywhere. No, no, sure, but but starting in our domain, I, I think uh, you know the, the lending club spearheading the whole effort. It's been mm -hmm. phenomenal. They've done a great job growing that business out. Um, I think uh, folks taking alternative approaches, especially in point of sale, like a firm, I, I think mm -hmm. are, are very interesting. Um, and we're watching those folks very closely and, and trying to learn as much as we can uh, from their businesses and their their lessons to, to, so that we don't have to repeat the same mistakes. And, and um, you know, both those companies are, are great leaders in our space. And do you want to go public or do you want to get bought by some giant bank? Well, I don't think we have any aspiration to be bought uh, because I, I, I don't want to... too expensive. Now. I think if a bank bought us, they would, to punish me, make me sit in a cube for a year. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to have to do that. Well. Uh, so I think at some point we will go public. I, I think with the SoftBank round of financing, it gives us a lot more runway in which we have to do that. Mm -hmm. um, so I think we can do it on our terms as opposed to the market terms. We're, we're profitable. We've been profitable for, for almost two years now. Well, that's just um, terrible, Mike. It's, what are you doing? I, 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 know, I know it's not what I'm supposed to be doing, yeah. but we, we are profitable. So it, so we can control our own destiny as to when we go public. But ultimately, maybe we will. not at all. Well, I, ultimately, we will, but, yeah. but it's not going to happen right away. Well, Mike, this has been fascinating. Thank you so much for coming in. Mike Cagney of SoFi. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. Be the first to listen to future episodes or catch up on previous episodes, including some really fantastic interviews that Peter Kafka and I have done with Ariana Huffington, Nick Denton, and Ricky Van Veen, just to name a few. That's a good warm-up for Peter's Code Media Conference, which is next week. You can find all those interviews and more at recode.net slash decode. And don't miss our other podcast, Recode Replay, and our newest show, Too Embarrassed to Ask. That's me and Lauren Good of The Verge answering all your burning tech questions. You can find both at recode.net slash podcasts. One of the best ways to support our show is to help us improve. And all you have to do is tell us a little bit about yourself. Take a short three-minute survey at recode.net slash podcast survey and help us by sharing your opinions on this show and how you listen to podcasts in general. Take the survey at recode.net slash podcast survey. Thanks for listening. This has been another episode of Recode Decode. Recode Senior Media Editor Peter Kafka will be here on Thursday, and I'll be back with our newest podcast, Too Embarrassed to Ask, this Friday, and back here on Recode Decode on Monday with another great guest. Tune in then. This has been Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher, powered by digital media. For more hard-hitting interviews with insiders from the worlds of tech, media, and politics, subscribe to Recode Replay on iTunes, featuring candid conversations with leading voices like AOL CEO Tim Armstrong, Goldman Sachs' CIO Marty Chavez, the team behind the hit TV show Empire, Shark Tank investor Mark Cuban, and presidential candidate Hillary Clinton. They're all on Recode Replay.